hiney, 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 brothers coffee, hiney, 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 brothers coffee, hiney. At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code THEPAST for $5 off any gift subscription. I don't know. I guess I didn't think 305 feet was that tall. That's, but it's like 45 LeBron James is stacked on. What? Oh, we're on. <laughs> Hi, uh, this is Mick Sullivan, and welcome to the Past and the Curious. This is episode 19, and it's all, all, all about the Statue of Liberty. We've got some really special guests today. My good friend Melinda Beck from right here in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, is going to read a story, and I'm so excited for you to hear Mr. Eric from What If World, our kids' listen partner. What If World should check him out. Mr. Eric is going to read a really, uh, the story's okay. His reading is fantastic though. So you're, I'm really excited for you to hear it. Uh, we also have the kids listen players. So listen for that at the end of the episode. Um, please consider giving us a donation on Patreon. This costs us a lot of money, but we have a lot of fun and leave us a review on iTunes. On with the show. In 1865, Some people in France were paying attention as the nightmare of the American Civil War finally ended. Many French citizens felt a kinship to America, dating from when the French helped George Washington and the colonists win the American Revolution against England. One of these freedom-loving Frenchmen was a man named Edward Laboulet, and one night he found himself at a dinner party surrounded by many powerful people. We don't know, but we think the conversation might have gone as follows. You guys, America's 100th birthday is coming up. It's only like 12 years away. Where does the time go? I think she's really been having a hard time. But I think that freedom from the Constitution is finally going to be a real thing. And it's not every day that you turn 100. We should get her something nice. Yeah, Yeah, something something really really nice. nice. Yeah, I can't do a French accent. An artist with a grand vision named Auguste Bartholdi was there, and the idea stuck with him. But for a good long while, it didn't really amount to much. This man, Bartholdi, was infatuated with the idea of making something huge, gigantic, colossus, if you will. And he was alive at an interesting time. Humans were laying railroad tracks across continents, but we were still a long way from highways, bridges, and airplanes. Ships carrying passengers and cargo were traveling all over the world, connecting people in ways that allowed for cultural influences to cross-pollinate and for trade goods to find their way into new hands. But if you were going to sail, let's say from England to Japan, you would have to travel all the way around the continent of Africa. And speaking of colossuses, 
Africa is a gigantic landmass. A trip down the west coast, down around the Horn, and back up the east side was a very time-consuming and expensive ordeal. There's got to be a better way. Uh, oh, oh, there is? Okay. Yeah, to solve this problem, in the 1860s, it was decided to create the Suez Canal. In essence, people dug an artificial waterway, basically a 120-mile-long, big, deep ditch. And it was through part of Egypt, the part near Israel, and it connected two major bodies of water. On one side of the Suez Canal is the Mediterranean Sea, and on the other side is the Red Sea. Both of those seas eventually give way to more ocean, meaning ships could now travel this way instead of heading south all the way around Africa. It was, in essence, a 4,300-mile shortcut. And as you might guess, this changed the world. And Bartoli wanted to honor that achievement, so he met with the leaders of Egypt. Think about it. Egypt has big stuff. The Sphinx? Huge. The pyramids? Gigantic. And now that this new world was dawning, Bartholdi's giant vision for a statue at the mouth of this world-changing Suez Canal would be a perfect fit. He wanted to call it Egypt carrying the light to Asia. And it was to be a giant peasant woman, wearing classical robes, sporting a crown and holding a torch while standing on a pedestal. That sounds familiar because it's pretty much the Statue of Liberty. And it could have wound up in Egypt instead of America. But as fate would have it, Egypt declined. So Bartholdi went back to the drawing board. Years passed, and in 1871, Bartholdi, with the help of Laboulet, sailed to America. He wanted his sculpture to be a reality, and he was looking for the perfect place to build it. The perfect place wound up being an island we now know as Liberty Island. In the years before, the island had been known as Bedloe's Island and Love Island. (laughs) Calm down. Before Europeans dominated the coast, the island was home to a large oyster bed, which the Native Americans used as a food source. Later, the island became a place to quarantine smallpox patients, a fort, and even, ironically, a prison. The island was perfect for many reasons, not the least of which was that New York City was not just the largest city in the United States, but also the largest port. Hundreds of ships would sail through the harbor daily, and the statue would greet every one of them as they approached their American destination. But they couldn't just put the statue on the ground. It would need a pedestal on which to sit and a foundation underneath to stay safe, especially in the New York Harbor winds. That's where the whole thing starts to get a little fuzzy, though. Bartholdi, Laboulet, and largely the general population of France raised funds to pay for the statue itself. But they were going to leave it to America to raise funds for the pedestal and the island. And it turns out this was not very cheap. And Americans weren't originally too excited about having to foot the bill. President Ulysses S. Grant agreed to let the island work for the statue, but how they would afford the pedestal was anyone's guess. In the meantime, the Statue of Liberty was delivered in boxes, and there it sat on the island.
In spring of 1885, the giant copper-colored figure, a robed woman with a torch and a spiky crown, finally stood, complete and for all to see, right in the heart of Paris. Paris, the Statue of Liberty? Seems weird, right? But it happened. For the time she was there, she was a popular sight. The citizens gave her a nickname, the Lady of the Park. Years later, another tall structure, the Eiffel Tower, would dominate the Paris skyline. But for now, Gustave Eiffel, the same man who would build that Eiffel Tower, was concerned with making this Lady of Liberty as structurally safe and strong as possible. She was tall and heavy, so it's a serious job. He had been hired by August Bartholdi, the man responsible for designing the remarkable statue. After a long process of dreaming, building, working tirelessly, and finally assembling, she was done. But now there was an enormous statue in Paris that was supposed to be across the ocean in America. Luckily, they had planned for this problem. It turns out that the beautiful lady could actually be taken apart into 350 pieces. And to make the job easier for the poor saps who had to put her back together like a giant piece of Ikea furniture, the Frenchman spent weeks writing, drawing, and notating what may be the most unusual instruction manual in history. Those 350 pieces were fit into 200 carefully packed giant crates and put on a train for a ride through the European countryside. When the train arrived at the coast, the Statue of Liberty, boxed in pieces, sheets, and chunks, met a ship called the Assaire. The ship was a navy vessel, but her guns were removed to make room for the statue, which weighed 225 tons, or 450,000 pounds, and took up an enormous amount of space. The men in charge of getting her to America was Rodolphe Victor de Durambourg, and he wasn't exactly drawing on a wealth of experience. No, the Statue of Liberty's safekeeping and journey to New York was left in the hands of this 19-year-old lieutenant. Cool! This will be fun. But the problems occurred immediately. When packing the crates, Bartholdi and Eiffel didn't consider the size of openings on the ship, so Drambor had to figure that out. Cool, this will be fun. He cut a hole in the side of the ship and loaded the crates directly into the hold beneath the decks. It was welded shut and they set sail. At one point, they nearly ran out of coal for fuel. Cool, this will be fun. After they refueled in the Azores, they took to the open water. Before long, the sailors aboard watched an enormous storm approach across the ocean. Good. This will be fun. Drambor probably saw visions of the precious statue deep at the bottom of the ocean. As the 72-hour-long storm threw the boat back and forth, the heavy crate shifted about in the hold, threatening to capsize the ship. But she made it. They chugged into New York Harbor on a foggy day in June. Quickly, a crowd assembled. They were probably disappointed, hoping to see the statue they'd heard so much about. Not a bunch of boxes. What's in the box? A group of important people met the French ship in the harbor, aboard their own ship called the Atlantic. According to an article in the New York Times published the following day, the mayor waved his hat in excitement as he called out, Bungja! Look it up. New York Times, June 20th, 1885. Bung jaw. Now, the following conversation is an imagined dramatization. It is not historically accurate, but we feel it reasonable considering the quote from the New York Times. Bung jaw! Ba, ba what? Bung jaw! Bung jaw? Is this an American nautical term? What is this? Bung jaw! Bung jaw! 
are you trying to say bonjour? Bonjour. 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 It's bonjour. Bunge. Binge. Hello. Okay, yeah. Hey, listen, we have your statue here. Where would you like us to leave it? We're not really ready for it yet, so, uh, just put it on that island over there. Am I supposed to tip you? What's the protocol here? What president's on our $5 bill? Jackson! All right, I've got a sweet Jackson for ya. Incredible. Perhaps you've heard of the Pulitzer Prize. It's an award given to the best American journalists, authors, and even music composers. The coveted prizes are awarded by a foundation created from Joseph Pulitzer's fortune, which was given to Columbia University. You can thank that same Mr. Pulitzer for making sure the Statue of Liberty managed to get on her feet. While the statue was scheduled to come steaming into New York Harbor, the construction on the pedestal had stalled. They ran out of money. So for almost a year, it sat in boxes on Bedloe's Island. Originally, they needed $250,000, but had raised just over half of that. It would take another $100,000 to cover the cost of the pedestal. That's a lot of money now, but that was a whole lot of money in the 1880s. The New York government wouldn't pay for it. The United States Congress refused to pay for it. It was the height of the Industrial Revolution, meaning there were several business owners who were making millions upon millions of dollars a year, living right there in New York City, and none of them would pay for it either. It was sad that such a beautiful gift and work of art couldn't find the financial support it needed. Then came an offer from officials in Philadelphia. Oh, hey guys, we'll gladly cover the cost of the pedestal. There is one catch, though. You're going to need to bring that statue down here. We'd love to have it. Baltimore made a similar offer, as did San Francisco and Boston. Who knows, not only could the statue have wound up in Egypt, it could have wound up in a completely different American city. Well, the people of New York didn't like that idea very much. Most of all, Joseph Pulitzer. Joseph Pulitzer came to America at the age of 19 from his native country of Hungary. He didn't speak English when he arrived, though he immediately enlisted in the Union Army during the Civil War. From there, he held several jobs, from the whaling industry to waiter in a restaurant. Settling in St. Louis, he spent any spare moment in the library reading and learning. Before long, he was working as a newspaper journalist. And not long after that, at the age of 31, his abilities and smarts led him to acquiring ownership of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper, which soon became a great success. A few years later, when he bought the New York World newspaper, it was struggling to stay in business, but once again, Pulitzer brought success to the paper. And it was through this newspaper that he would raise money for the pedestal. As an immigrant and a man who had worked hard for everything he had earned, Pulitzer looked not to the rich or the government, he looked to everyday people. He reasoned that the statue had not been a gift from the government of France to the government of the United States, it had been a gift from the people of France to the people of the United States. And if no one else would, he believed the people could be willing to help defray the cost a little bit at a time. He also realized that people really liked to be recognized and to see their names in print. Vanity is nothing new. So he announced that anyone, anywhere, who gave any amount of money towards the pedestal would have their name printed in the pages of the New York world, Pretty smart, because not only did people send in money, they also bought the paper to see their name in it. 
In about six months, they received over 120,000 separate donations. Some of the donations were pretty large. The mayor of nearby Buffalo, New York, donated an entire year's salary, $230. Many others matched that donation, but those folks barely made a dent in the total needed. The average donation was under $1, but there were a whole lot of donations under $1. Thousands and thousands of them, in fact, and that adds up. One man from nearby New Jersey mailed in $2.65 with a note saying each of his children wished to help, so they gave 25 35 or $0.50 cents each, whatever each had saved and was willing to sacrifice. And that was not unusual. It was pretty normal, in fact. School children all over the USA literally mailed in pennies. Understand, this isn't the equivalent of the spare change in your couch cushions. It sounds small now, but to an individual in the 1880s, a few cents could go a long way. These gifts truly were sacrifices coming from regular people, many living in poor conditions. Cent by cent, nickel by nickel, the $100,000 goal began to shrink. When all was said and done six months later, they raised just over $101,000. It was enough to pay for the pedestal and to also give Bartoldi a gift of gratitude for his vision. The collection was a radical idea and a patriotic motion led by a Hungarian immigrant. That's not to say that he didn't benefit from it, too. Subscriptions to his newspaper skyrocketed because of the effort, which made him a lot of money, too. It was a clever solution to a problem, and it was also a clever marketing ploy. If you're familiar with the term crowdsourcing today, this is a very early and successful example of that. Instead of asking a few people for a large donation, crowdsourcing often asks lots of people for small donations. There could even be a chance someone from your family donated a few cents to help build the statue's pedestal. As the legend goes, Georgina Schuyler was in a New York used bookstore in 1901 when she picked up a dusty portfolio of poetry. Schuyler was a wealthy socialite and an art patron who happened to be a direct descendant of Alexander Hamilton. She had also been friends with the author of a poem contained in that book that she now held. All but forgotten, she read her friend's poem and was struck by the words on the page. The memories of a world from 20 years ago filled her mind. In 1883, when the Statue of Liberty was still under construction in France, and before Joseph Pulitzer began his pitch to raise money for the pedestal, all sorts of attempts were made to do the same. One group of art patrons put together an auction encouraging some of the best poets, writers, and otherwise of the time to create something for the occasion. Those would then be auctioned off to benefit the statue fund. Mark Twain wrote something. Walt Whitman did too. And so did a respected writer from a wealthy Jewish family named Emma Lazarus. Miss Lazarus was moved by events that were happening across the ocean in Europe. A political revolution in 1881 led to terrible consequences for the Jewish population of Russia, and faced with the choice of staying in a dangerous place and not being able to care for their families, or leave, many Jewish-Russian families left. Many of those wound up in New York City, which could be a scary place for anyone, but especially for people who did not speak the language. 
Emma spent much of her time working with and for these Jewish immigrants, volunteering to teach English and spend countless hours helping at Ward's Island, which was filled with barracks to house the immigrants who were not yet released to join American society. Many of these people, like the Jewish families from Russia, had left their homes in desperation and the promise of opportunity in America. In Emma's mind, Bartholdi's statue, which is actually officially titled Liberty Enlightening the World, well, it was something in her eyes more along the lines of the mother of exiles, like a goddess guiding those in need. So, when she wrote her poem for the fundraiser, the idea of helping immigrants was definitely on her mind. The new Colossus, her poem, was auctioned off for $1,500, and for about 20 years, no one really thought much about it. And sadly, Emma Lazarus died in 1887, just a year after the Statue of Liberty, excuse me, I mean Liberty Enlightening the World, officially opened. Seventeen years later, Georgina Schuyler found that poem, The New Colossus, and she was struck by the language and the power of her friend's writing. For two years, she led an effort to display the poem on a plaque at the Statue of Liberty. In 1903, it was officially unveiled, and today it is one of the most recognizable aspects of the statue. The New Colossus not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Emma Lazarus, November 2nd, 1883. Oh, sweet and lovely lady, be good. Oh, lady, be good to me. I am so awfully misunderstood. So, lady, be good to me. Oh, won't you please have some pity? I'm all alone in this big city I'm just a lonesome babe in the woods So lady
lonesome babe in the woods so lady be good oh lady be good oh lady be good to me there you have it episode 19 and we have to thank the Kids Listen Players, which is what we're calling them, Andrew and Polly from Ear Snacks, such great people, Joey Massio from Imaginate, Rebecca Weaver from Cozy Corner, and Chaska Mirabel Leilani and Dad Brennan from Book Power for Kids. Those are four great shows in the Kids Listen group. you got to go check them out. Go to kidslisten.org. And I also have to say a big shout out to my buddy, Dylan. Yeah, Dylan! He and his family just became Patreon sponsors, and we are so grateful. Check us out at thepastandthecurious.com. Find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, find us on Instagram, and find us on Patreon. It's all linked on our website, so you can just go there and check out our friends at Kids Listen. See you next month.